Hi, Dr. Sam Waldron here. The fields are white for harvest, but the laborers are few. Most men who need a seminary education can afford it the least, and no seminary is fully supported by student tuition and fees. We rely on the generosity of our supporters and friends. Would you give today and help us to make informed scholarship with pastoral heart affordable for the next generation of gospel ministers? Visit cbtseminary.org give to learn how you can help. You are listening to Particular Pilgrims, stories from Reformed Baptist history with commentary. I'm your host, Ron Miller, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church of Clarksville, Tennessee, and a longtime student and collector of Particular Baptist history. We're on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. In the last episode about Benjamin Stinton, I mentioned a confession of faith written by Benjamin Keach. This small publication was simultaneously produced by Keach and his son Elias for their churches. The only differences were the title page and the introductory letters to the readers. Elias's referred to itself as a, quote, confession of faith containing the substance of all the fundamental articles in the larger confession. This meant, of course, that it was claiming to be a summary of what we call the 1689 Confession of Faith. The Elder Keech's was entitled, The Articles of the Faith of the Church of Christ or Congregation Meeting at Horsley Down. Now, Horsley Down was an area in Southwark, across the London Bridge from the main city. This church was the same body that first recognized Keech as their pastor in 1668, and that he would shepherd until his death in 1704. The Articles of Faith themselves were printed in 1697. And this raises questions. For example, why would Keach, who signed the 1689 Confession of Faith, write a confession just a few years later? Are there known reasons for him doing this? What are the differences, if any, between this confession and the 1689? What impact did this confession have? Did other pastors and churches do this in the following years of the 1700s? The answers to these questions will teach us about the areas of agreement and disagreement in doctrine and practice in the particular Baptist churches in the years following the signing of the 1689. Some of these questions can be definitively answered because Keach addressed them in a dedication to the confession. Writing to his fellow church members, he noted that most of them were converted by the blessing of God on his own ministry. He rejoiced that these, his spiritual children, walked in love, unity, and peace together, and then he offered to them, quote, that which you have so long waited for and desired me to endeavor to do, namely, to state an account of the most concerning articles of your faith. The church wanted him to produce a shortened confession of faith containing the most important truths, so Keach wrote it. Then it had been read to them, and they approved of it, presumably by vote. So why was it thought important by the congregation at this time? Keach lists several reasons. First was his age. He was 57 years old in a time 
when the average lifespan was about 40 years. So, as he put it, not knowing how soon I may put off this tabernacle, he desired to leave behind an account of, quote, that holy doctrine and order in which, through grace, you are established. This was important because, secondly, he noted that the general and more large confession of the faith of our churches is now out of print. It had been printed in 1677 and 1688, and it would be again in 1699. But in 1697, he, of course, had no way of knowing of that future printing. And besides, the complete articles were a shilling, or 12 pence, and that was too expensive for some of Keech's people. A third reason for producing this confession was to show the basic unity in fundamental doctrines with, quote, those who bear other names. Keech wanted to demonstrate his congregation's Protestant orthodoxy. But this was also an opportunity to explain a few differences between themselves and, quote, some that bear the same name with you. In other words, he recognized that the particular Baptist churches were not completely uniform in doctrine and practice. A fourth and related point Keach makes is that though they fully agreed with the 1689 Confession, there were other parts of their faith not included in that document. He then lists the imposition of hands upon baptized believers and the singing of God's praise as examples of this. But Keach states that he did not believe in refusing communion, as he puts it, to those who differed on these points. Now, the word communion at this time had several meanings. It could refer to church membership, the taking of the Lord's Supper, or general fellowship between believers. Given the context, I suspect that Keach intends most likely the last meaning— but perhaps all three were in his mind. While Keach penned the confession, it was a decidedly congregational set of articles. Fifty male members signed the document. They did this, quote, by the appointment of the whole congregation, end quote, on August 10th, 1697. This was a Tuesday, so perhaps the church had a meeting appointed for that day. The articles do what they claim. They contain the substance of the larger confession. But Keach rearranged the chapters, lengthened some and shortened others, while also adding new information. It is not merely a light version of the 1689. It is rather heavily edited, and it appears he took pains to have it reflect other documents, and yet at the same time be smaller and more practical in areas of church order, and even memorable or memorizable. In its initial printing, Keech's confession was 40 pages long. This compared to the 1689's 140 pages. This would have made it more affordable and accessible to the average reader. It had 37 short articles and a postscript about justification. But these paragraphs had another advantage. Their content frequently matched the Baptist Catechism of 1695. Over and over, the longer confessional material was replaced with more succinct portions from those questions and answers. In fact, a few of the chapters are almost word for word taken from the Catechism. 
and the confession's order was changed to reflect more the catechetical order. Keech's lifelong high esteem for the use of this teaching tool is quite evident. Instead of beginning with the doctrine of Scripture, he began with an article on the attributes of God and his triunity. It's taken from the Catechism with only minor additions. It uses less technical language than the 1689 while remaining orthodox. Then he moves on to God's decrees, creation, and providence. Again, the Catechism supplies a major portion of the content. Next, he turns to the doctrine of Scripture, and this portion is rooted in the confession. Overall, there are several emphases that Keech repeatedly makes throughout this document. First, there is a great deal more covenantal language than in the 1689. He has a chapter on what he calls the first covenant, or the covenant of life, or what he also calls the covenant of works. He has a separate chapter on the second covenant, or the covenant of grace. The first covenant was made with Adam as its head, and the second covenant was made with Christ, or the second Adam, as its representative. The article on original sin also includes covenantal thought. Secondly, he regularly presents the gospel, warning and offering it to his readers. It's obvious that he is a preacher who is used to freely and frequently presenting Christ. Even though his words are few, the descriptions of the work and glory of Christ are rich. Third, he strongly presents the ordinances of God, both in the sense of the elements of worship and in the sense of baptism and the Lord's Supper. What Christ ordained and the apostles taught and practiced, well, that is what he wants his church to follow. That is what the church wants to perform. His statement on baptism is a great improvement over the 1689. It uses elements from the confession joined with the catechism to present more truth, and it even ties baptism to church membership, as the overwhelming majority of Baptists did in that day. He says, baptism, quote, is an initiating ordinance. For the supper, he uses language suitable to it being understood both as an ordinance and a sacrament. He is also clear on what he calls the Christian Sabbath, which is to be kept on the first day of the week, not the seventh. It was just about this time that he had been writing on that subject, and so it was perhaps at the forefront of his mind. The most striking differences between the 1689 and Keech's articles are the inclusion of two paragraphs, one on the laying on of hands and the other on singing the praises of God. Now, these are original to him, and Elias fully agreed on this points with his father. The laying on of hands was for the further reception of the Holy Spirit and his graces after baptism and membership, but before taking the supper. Keech had learned this in his General Baptist days and continued to believe that it was scriptural. Adding an article on singing the praises of God might seem redundant to us, but remember, the 1689 Confession only quoted scripture when defining this element of worship, and there were great differences of opinion about what the Bible meant with those verses. Keech wanted to be clear that more than general praise or songs only in the heart were meant. He taught that the entire congregation was to sing together out loud to God's praise. 
While the confession itself served a very local and temporary need, it did have at least one long-term effect. That is that these two paragraphs on the laying on of hands and singing made their way to the Philadelphia Baptist churches. Some of them had been pastored previously by Elias and added to their Welsh background, at least for most of these Philadelphia Baptists, they were very receptive to both practices. And so when the Philadelphia Association agreed on a confession, it was the same content as the 1689, but with the addition of the exact wording of these two articles. And so the confession with these two articles spread across the colonies. Pastors writing their own confessions also became a practice in the years that followed. It was a way of declaring both one's orthodoxy and differences. John Gill, for example, wrote a confession used by this same church, which highlighted both. It became a common act for a man being considered for the eldership to do this. So in this way, the Keech's production of a shortened and personalized confession was continued by others. Thank you for listening today. This is Ron the Baptist wishing you grace and peace. Thank you.